according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me if you would this morning. We are once again in Philippians chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain, as we're centering on this powerful verse here in uh, verse 21, Philippians 1.21, for to me, and uh, this is very personal, Paul has adopted this in his uh, outlook, in his viewpoint, that this is his conviction, and he wants it to be our conviction, uh, the, the Philippian readers of this epistle, and, and anyone uh, any New Testament believer ought to be able to identify with what it means to be born again, and that the very life that we have is not us, it's Christ. And so uh, these matters of life and death, if we're going to contrast Zoe life with Thanatos' death, it's really beside the point that uh, it's, it's only the lost and dying world that gets all wrapped up in matters of life and death, as if that's the pinnacle, that's the ultimate thing to be concerned about. Uh, most of the passages, I'm going to show you five passages this morning that contrast life and death, but really that is, becomes beside the point in each of these passages that we look at because there are larger things in view. Here in Philippians chapter 1, the larger thing in view is a hope, an earnest expectation and hope. Just glance back up to verse 20 and you'll see it there. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. And so the hope is to not be put to shame, but to exalt Christ. That's the prime directive for the Apostle Paul. And then whether by life or by death is beside the point. Whether by life or by death is, is irrelevant, because he wants to exalt Christ. And that becomes the, the main thrust here. So to live as Christ and to die as gain. Before we start our message this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father to bless our thinking, to set aside distractions, and to humble us under His authority. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before Your throne of grace this morning, and we thank You for this opportunity. Father, we know that you are a God of grace and everything you do is in grace, and that includes our time today. Father, we don't deserve this. Who are we that we should come into your presence? Father, we, uh, we recognize that everything that we can learn, everything that we can know is because of your grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each New Testament believer priest, that, uh, Father, the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. We call upon your faithfulness this morning, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, teach us what it means, uh, as it says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Help us to understand the words and help us to uh, apply uh, to, it, to the fullness, Father, the impact of this doctrine. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so uh, as we've been looking at it here, uh, let me just pick up. Uh, we had point one in the outline. Paul's present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. He has every expectation looking forward that the rejoicing he's doing now is going to continue. And uh, we see that in the two parts of verse 18 uh, where he says, uh, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. That's present tense. Then he says, yes, I will rejoice. That's future tense. And so uh, Paul has a great confidence of that future rejoicing on the basis of how he's rejoicing now. 
And uh, that's a good lesson for all of us. If we are having rejoicing struggles, let's just start rejoicing now and uh, find things to rejoice in now with our body of brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no shortage of things to rejoice in. So let's rejoice now and train ourselves for that future rejoicing uh, in perhaps some testing coming up that may not be so uh, may not be so easy to rejoice in. So we build the pattern now and uh, we'll do better with that down the road. Uh, we went from there to point two. There were some subpoints in that, but I'm going to pass over that for the moment. We moved on to point two, whether by life or by death. And uh, the particle eta is the particle for whether or, or if or, or neither nor. It's just contrasting two things. So eta zoe or eta thanatos, whether by life or by death. And uh, either way, Paul's fine with either way, whatever God chooses to do. Because remember, the Father is the one that's working in and through us for His good pleasure. And if it's the Father's good pleasure for me to live, then I want to continue living. If it's the Father's good pleasure for me to die, then I want to do so in a way that glorifies His Son. And so whether I live or whether I die, this is what Paul's saying here, we should all adopt the view, whether I live or whether I die, that's, that's not my concern, that's God's business. And if this is his assignment for my physical death, then I want to go out with full reward. I want to, I want to finish my course. I want to finish strong. And uh, that's the, uh, the impact here. So whether by life or by death. And if you're familiar with Pastor uh, Theme from uh, R.B. Theme from uh, Baraka Church in Houston, Texas, uh, years and years ago he developed the doctrine of the mastery of the circumstances and details of life. And I've, I've loved that doctrine almost my whole life. I think I was five or six years old when I first learned that doctrine and, and appreciated the, uh, the principle that says, hey, whatever my testing is, whatever my circumstances are, it uh, doesn't really change the fact that God is still faithful, that His promises are still true. I can still faith rest and walk by faith. It goes hand in hand with the doctrine of faith rest. And so you learn these doctrines and then, uh, man, it's, uh, it's a marvelous way to, to conduct your Christian walk. So I like the title. I'm not too fond of the term mastery, though. I've kind of always had a, a pet peeve against the word mastery because um, it's not my mastery. Right? I don't have mastery of anything. I'm just walking by faith. God's the one that has mastery. And so I prefer to, to, to reword it, um, make it more subjective for my experience. Uh, I'm not mastering anything, but I am maintaining a steadfast divine viewpoint. I want to maintain a steadfast divine viewpoint through every circumstance and detail of both life and death. All right, And that's uh, what we deal with here, whether by life or by death. We took the time to break down vocabulary for you on Zoe. Zoe is the noun for life, and uh, Zao is the verb that uh, that Zoe comes from. Looked at those verses, and then Thanatos is uh, is our term for death, with a compound verb that's apathenesco. And I'm not going to go back through that. We left off in point three, which is to live as Christ and to die as gain. The uh, principle, obviously, the the verse that's quoted there in uh, in verse 21. And we recognize under this that the definition of life, that what we have here is the, is the infinitive, okay? And unless you're a language geek, you probably don't care, but I'm just going to share with you a little bit the idea of an infinitive, okay? Then infinitive, in English, we, we put the word to in front of a verb, right? To live, to die, Okay, to be or not to be. We have we have infinitives. We have the little helping word to that goes in front of a in front of a verb. 
okay, to ramble, okay, uh, things like that. And, and the infinitive is, the verb is, is not necessarily being expressed, but it's the idea of the verb that's being described in a certain way. And so the, the verb itself may not even be expressed depending on the sentence or how it's, or how it's used. And so the idea of a, of a verbal idea, present active infinitive of za'o defines the very idea of living. And it's neat that we're reaching this because uh, Lewis and Bill are just reaching that chapter in, in uh, the, the, the grammar that introduces imperatives and infinitives and participles and some of these, some of these other moods. And so it's, it's useful that we get a, a couple of infinitives here this morning uh, just by way of, of illustration. So to live, okay, the idea of living. In fact, if you've ever studied Spanish, I know Spanish, German, French, uh, a lot of languages, the infinitive form is the form that you look up in the dictionary. It's the vocabulary form. You learn, for example, hacer means to speak, and then you learn, you know, you learn your different verbs, you know, the forms, uh, yo hablo, tu hablas, you know, el habla, nosotros hablamos, things like that. You learn your, your paradigm Ablar, I'm sorry, ablar is the verb, is the infinitive, right? And so you learn your infinitives and then everything else is built off those infinitives. And so uh, that's kind of how you, you learn in a lot of those languages. Greek doesn't do that, though. Uh, infinitive you don't get to for quite some time uh, because they don't use the infinitive form as the, as the vocabulary form. In any event, the idea of living, to live, what is that? What is the idea of living, to live? Well, to summarize it in one word, it's Christ. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so if we have some aspect of what we're doing that does not magnify Jesus Christ, let me tell you, it has no business uh, as a part of our life, as a part of our Zoe life in Christ. It's, uh, if it does not magnify Jesus Christ, if it brings him to shame, if it diminishes him, or even if it just simply distracts, right, then why are we pursuing it? If it's a, if it's a non-essential or if it's a distraction, then uh, the book of Hebrews calls that an encumbrance that so easily entangles us. And we should, we should be laying those things aside. If it does not center on Christ, then by definition, it's not included in why we have this new life, see. And so it is um, the aspect here, all right? So the present active infinitive of Zao defines the very idea of living as Christ himself. And uh, when you think about the introduction to the gospel of John, John 1.1 1, 1, and uh, down through verse 4, you have this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and we know that, that that Word is Jesus Christ. He is God the Son, the second member of Trinity, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Wasn't the Father that was born of a virgin or the Holy Spirit, it was God the Son that humbled Himself to take human form. And so it was Jesus then. God the Son becomes Jesus Christ as He's born of the virgin. The Word became flesh. But before the foundation of the world, what was going on? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He, or the same, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. So when you do any creation study, you've got to realize the creation study is the Father and Son, that the Father designed it, and through the Son it was put into effect. The Father's the architect, the Son's the carpenter. Okay? He didn't, I mean, his humanity, he learned carpentry skills from Joseph, but, uh, you know, Jesus was a carpenter long before that, okay? 
because he built the universe. Think how powerful that is. So uh, all things came into being through him. Through him. And we'll see that here in a moment too. Through him and for him. But here it just says through him. And so the Father is the, is the authority, is the source, the one giving direction, the one designing the, the blueprints. And then the Son is the one executing the Father's plan. Through him, the, uh, all things came into being. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So if it exists, if it was created, then the Son is the one that created it in the will of God the Father. And then it says, in him was Zoe. In him was life. Specifically, in God the Son. Now, it was in the Father as well, and the Holy Spirit as well. But the life that's in the Son, notice, the life was the light of men. And so there's a connection to the life of Jesus Christ that's designed for the realm of humanity. That's why it was the God-man who went to the cross and became the source of our eternal life. Not for angels. Angel of the Lord didn't go to the cross. It was the God-man who went to the cross. This isn't the light of angels. It's the light of anthropos. It's the light of man. Okay? And so um, the very idea of living is Christ himself. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. Then we have 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30 to go with this as well. By his doing, and this is why we can't boast. This is why uh, human boasting is, is out of the picture. No man can boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's our positional truth. We are church age believer priests, and, and by being saved in this stewardship, we are baptized into union with Jesus Christ, who, came, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption and so kind of add that to to live as christ because well what does that mean it means wisdom righteousness sanctification redemption and the whole package of positional truth what does it mean to be in christ that's our christian walk that's why we study to show ourselves approved that's why we grow in uh, the full knowledge of these things i would also add to that galatians 2 20 and I meant to put that on the slide as well. Failed to do so, but we can look at Galatians 2.20. It was my mother's favorite verse. I don't know if it still is or not, because she's been in heaven nearly five years now, but when she was on earth, Galatians 2.20 was her favorite verse. We talk about the life that we now live. Uh, verse 19 says, Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. And it goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Now we understand this. We understand what happens positionally when we're baptized in a union. We are baptized with death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. And so that includes crucifixion. But we have to, by faith, take that reality and, and make it our realization. So that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, before you get saved, it's all about you, isn't it? It's all selfish. It's all about me. And I'm living for myself. No, once you're saved, you're not living for yourself anymore. You didn't die for yourself. He died for you. We need to live for him. And so it says, the life that I now live 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is, I'm still in a physical human body, but now I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is our experience now as believers in the church age. And what a privilege, what a thrill to be able to do this knowing based on the, on the basis of that past completed work of Jesus Christ, we now have that guarantee of eternal life. We live in that life right now. That's our, uh, that's our blessing. All right, so it's a present active infinitive, present tense. As opposed to the participle for dying, I'm sorry, the infinitive for dying, which is an aorist infinitive, okay? And so if, if you're getting your first introduction to infinitives in this uh, chapter 6 of, of uh of, uh, of, of Duff's grammar, well then pay attention because uh, there's a difference between a present infinitive and an aorist infinitive. All right? The present infinitive speaks of a, a continuous action, whereas an aorist infinitive speaks of a moment. It's punctiliar. It speaks of a, of a single moment. Okay? And in reality, isn't that a good description here? Because our life is eternal. The eternal life in Christ, of course, is present tense. And then our death, to die is gain, well, that death is just a moment. That death is punctiliar. Before we know it, I mean, we close our eyes, we say good night here, we say good morning up there, <laughs> okay? It's just like that. Death. Where's the victory? Where's the sting? Because we, we experience it, and then we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So it's an aorist active infinitive, aorist, not present, apothenesco, And again, it's an infinitive, so it's defining the idea. What's the idea of death? What's the idea of thanatos? The idea of thanatos is profit. It's gain. And by kurdos, the the noun kurdos uh, speaks of profit or gain or winning. All right? It spans a whole uh, uh, semantic range of profiting. If it's a financial transaction, it's a profitable financial transaction or uh, gaining if it's uh, another uh, context, or even winning if it's a race. Uh, you can, uh, winning is, is, uh, use, uses this term. Church discipline uses this term. If your brother listens to you, you have gained your brother, you have won your brother in Matthew 18. Or uh, the uh, obedient, faithful wife, if she has a, a sinning husband, 1 Peter chapter 3, and she's supposed to stay faithful before the Lord and silently, she doesn't nag him, doesn't preach at him, but without a word, she can win her husband, okay? And so we have a term here, I think we're familiar with the term, uh, you know, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You know, what do you give in exchange for your soul? You can't put a price on a human soul. And so uh, that's Matthew sixteen twenty six with Mark and Luke parallels. Uh, I think we're familiar with James 4.13. You know, come you who say, let's go to a certain city, we'll work there for a year and we'll make a profit. And uh, in that chapter there in James, the, the admonishment says, you can't say that. You don't know what's going to happen in a year. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So just say, if the Lord wills, we will do such, such and such. So, you know, uh, that's why I'm always, uh, you know, rapture pending. Uh, you know, I'll see you again uh, Wednesday or not, you know, rapture pending, it's here, there, or in the air, because we don't know. We don't know about tomorrow. I wasn't promised today, and yet here we are. So uh, we're thankful for that. But the idea of the verb kurdino, the noun kurdos, 
the uh, semantic range for this. It's going to come back again in chapter 3, by the way, uh, the idea of profit and loss. Uh, Paul uses his own example and says, you know, he has a background that others would just drool over. He's got qualifications, he's got degrees, he's got, uh, you know, he's got it from childhood. He was, he was prepped to be an amazing Old Testament scholar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all his upbringing in the, in the Pharisee schools and everything that he had. And he says, all of that is, is loss. All of that is refuse. All of that gets flushed down the toilet. He says, the gain, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, that's the profit, that's the gain. And uh, so, in Philippians uh, 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And uh, this, this is what it comes down to. This is why we have teaching the way we do. This is why we have brothers and sisters that are hungry for teaching and they're not, you know, they're not showing up for the entertainment or the fun and games or the programs, okay? <laughs> Clearly. Because, uh, you know, if that's your priority, uh, you'd have been elsewhere a long time ago, as far as that goes. And, you know, what are we valuing and why? Because the real profit, the real gain is knowing Christ. And we want to know Him more and more. That's what Philippians is going to be teaching us here. All right. Now, Paul affirms this. Paul affirms this mindset as his personal perspective. He affirms this mindset as his personal, he says, to me, to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And that's to me, all right? And so a skeptic or a doubter or just anybody might come along, it's legitimate to say, well, you know, is that, does that make it universal then? Is that something that, you know, should I have that attitude or is that just your opinion? Uh, or is this doctrine? Is this, is this, are we accountable for this? Should, if I have a different view, if I say to me, okay, I, I get it, Paul, you're, you're a zealot, okay? You're kind of one of those Bible thumper, you know, fanatics, uh, you know, and so that's okay for you, but maybe it's not good for me, right? And, and sadly, we're 21st century American Christians and we're surrounded by a, uh, a uh, worldview, that, that's so pervasive and throughout our culture that wants to relativize everything where, you know, find, find what you're good with, find what, what works for you, find what you're happy with. And if it works for you, then do that. If it doesn't, well, then, you know, it's okay. And, and so here we are in our day and age, and we might be tempted to, to read a verse like, well, to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we might be quick to okay, maybe not us at Austin Bible Church, but maybe some Christian friends of ours in, in other ministries. It, and particularly if they've really embraced a pluralistic kind of, kind of, I've got different terms for it. You see what I'm saying? Some people might just pick up on those words to me and then shut down, close their ears, not pay attention to anything else after that. Say, well, that's just your opinion, okay? Well, that's, that's to you then, who cares? You know, to me, to live is baseball, you know, and whatever. Um, it's not, by the way, it used to be, but no more, you know. <laughs> anyway, tough time of year, isn't it, with World Series going on, you're staying up late and you're watching stuff. 
Well, he says it's to me, and he says it, but he says it even previously. We talked about this back in verse 7. When he says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. So is that something that gets expanded beyond Paul? Are there others that could join in that attitude? And I'd say yes. In fact, Paul very frequently, when he gives his mindset and his personal perspective, he very frequently encourages his readers to adopt the same attitudes. And, and, and so, yes, he gives his opinion on a matter, but he says, wait a minute, this view of mine for application is being shaped by the doctrines and the promises and the principles and the absolute uh, things that are spoken of in the Word of God. And so uh, if it's being shaped by the absolutes, then yes, it's a subjective application, but you would not go wrong adopting it yourself, okay? And if you came to a different subjective application, I would be nervous about that. I would ask, well, why, okay? Is it a non-issue? Is it a doubtful thing? Is it, a, is it one of those applications whereby you could do this or do that and you're neither the the better if you do nor the worse if you don't okay there are plenty of those in the christian walk i just don't think this is one of them i think the life and death perspective is an application we all should be making i don't see it as a romans 14 doubtful thing about whether you drive a ford or a chevy or you prefer crest or colgate or or whatever you know your toothpaste brand is not relevant at the judgment seat of Christ. But perspectives of life and death, whereby you're either glorifying Christ or you're bringing Him to shame, I think that's going to get evaluated. That's going to be a part of, of your application for, for what is evaluated. So, Paul affirms this mindset as his personal perspective. He says, emoi. It's uh, the dative of, of, of me, to me, okay? To me, for me, in my view. This is my perspective. Yet he frequently encourages his readers to adopt the same attitude. And in verse 7 he said, uh, it is only right for me to feel this way or to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Clearly, this is, what, this is the intimacy of the Christian walk. This is, this is brothers and sisters that love one another, that pray for one another. And, uh, and if, if he has them in his heart, is that going to stay a one-way street? Or are they going to have him in their heart also? Is, it gonna be, is that how phileo love is, is reciprocated and how it's fostered in the fellowship that we have? See, fellowship. When it says partakers of grace with me, that's quinonia, that's fellowship. How do you have fellowship by yourself? <laughs> that takes the body of Christ. So, uh, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So he's sharing with them all of these circumstances, all of these things. They can join with him in the attitudes that he's developing. And I think it's the same thing here. With to live as Christ, to die as gain, the Holy Spirit puts it in the scriptures. We all can be um, adopting this mindset. Uh, it'll come up uh, again in chapter 3. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. See? So he's shared some things that he has made a priority. He talks about it in, in verses 12 and following. This is chapter 3 now. 
um, what he wants to do is he wants to grow. He wants to grow in, in his knowledge of Christ. He wants to become more Christ-like. Um, in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's his goal, that I may know him. And so a reader might say, well, okay, that's good for you, Paul. Do I need to do that too? Yeah, you do. Okay, He's going to urge all of us to adopt that same attitude. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, don't, aren't we already there? If we're saved, don't we already have a guaranteed resurrection? Why does it say that I may attain to the resurrection? Not, so stay tuned. There's some good doctrine that goes into that. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What a great verse. But a skeptic might look at that and say, well, okay, Paul, that's what you're doing. That's good for you. I'm just not that hungry. I just don't have an appetite like that. You know, I, I'm, I'm okay with you know, fewer Bible classes. I'm okay with less effort. I'm okay with uh, whatever. See, And so if we limit Paul's opinions or Paul's statements of, of what his convictions are, then I think we, we fail to recognize that Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recording these things in the, in the Word of God, and we're accountable. What's written in Scripture is, is what we're accountable for. And then he specifically says, and he expressly says, if your attitude is different, you've got to change it. God's going to reveal that to you. So, um, brethren, in verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. You know, we all have a past. We all have yesterday and, and things before yesterday. But there's today and there's tomorrow. And in His grace, day by day, we want to glorify Christ and we want to learn and we want to grow. And we want to press on. And so he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the therefore call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that sounds like a lot of effort. It is. It's exhaustive. But that's what we're called to do. Uh, Christianity, we're not saved to a, a life of ease. We're not saved to just a, you know, hey, great, you're saved now. Just hang around and do nothing until, until glory. No, there's a lot of living going on between, between the cross and, uh, and heaven. Okay? So, I press on. And then he says, it, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And so now he adopts the, the first person plural, and um, it's been first person singular all up to that, talking about I, 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 I. Now he's inviting his readers to jo- join him in that attitude. Let us. Let us. Okay? And then if you're not familiar, it's, it's cohortative, it's, it's, it's a way to express an imperative to other people, but you include yourself in it, and so it becomes all of us. Hey, let's do this, all right? And if you're not familiar with that, stay tuned, because the book of Hebrews uses them over and over and over again. The author of Hebrews is constantly including himself in every exhortation that he uh, gives his readers, okay? Including, by the way, the warning to not fall short, to not uh, have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And if the author of Hebrews feels that he is vulnerable to apostasy, um, 
I think that gets all of our attention, don't you think? (laughs) Ooh, wait a minute. Who is it that's immune to the danger of falling away? So, Paul affirms this mindset as a personal perspective, yet frequently encourages his readers to adopt the same attitudes. And uh, as many as are being perfected uh, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. And, and this, is, this is grace. In this grace, this means that you don't have to convince me. <laughs> that means that you're not measuring up to some pastor or apostle in Paul's case or, or whatever. Okay, and you can put on a show and you can fool the, the pastor because he's nice and believes all things. But God is the one that sees if, if it's just a phony thing or not. Uh, if you have a different attitude, God is the one that's going to show that to you. God's the one you gotta, you're, you're standing before. I'm walking with you in the, whole, in the whole endeavor here. So let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example. And the reason why that's so critical is because there's an alternative example that's out there. There's a negative peer pressure, and that's uh, the enemies of the cross of Christ, and and there's many of them. And uh, they're described in in verses 17 and following there, and we want to avoid that crowd, okay? Because that's going to take us the wrong place. How about uh, Galatians 5.10? Galatians 5.10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. Okay? And so, well, what view is that? Well, what's he talking about? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's talking about running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And uh, what we taught there when we were in the book of Galatians. But I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. So what view do you have? You know, are are we a cult? Is a Bible church a a cult? Is this a slave circumstance? (laughs) You know, we uh, we teach the Word of God. We teach the Bible. Uh, We we don't make you believe anything. We don't make you know anything. We don't make you adopt any particular view. We can present clearly what we believe are the right views and what are the wrong views and what are the biblical views and what are the unbiblical views. Okay. Uh, spent much of this last week uh, discussing eternal security with uh, uh, somebody that uh, says they believe it, but they really don't. Because their definition of eternal security is not the Bible's definition of eternal security. It's predicated upon a theology. And so it's, it's curious. And, if, and when I talk to folks on this basis, if, they, if I can get some honesty out of them, then they'll admit that they don't hold to eternal security. They hold to... Um, perseverance, which is different, okay? They say it's not, but then they think it through, and then they finally say, you know, I, I think you're right. So, so we have it. And so they give me their views, I give them my views, they show me their verses, I show them their verses. But what they think is what they think, and what they believe is what they believe. And that's a good thing. Okay? Each one of us is a believer priest, the privacy of our priesthood, the, the convictions of our soul, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Um, so uh, they're going to adopt the view they adopt, and, and uh, Paul has confidence 
that they will adopt no other view. How about 1 Corinthians 7? There's a lot of opinions in 1 Corinthians 7. A lot of opinions. And it's a passage that deals uh, with uh, marriage and divorce and celibacy and non-celibacy. Fairly long chapter. Um, early in the uh, chapter he says, concerning the things about which you wrote. So they had questions for him and they had written him a letter. We don't have that letter, but we have um, the answers to their questions. He says, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. <laughs> All right? You're laughing. Uh, it is good. Okay. So um, celibacy is great. Abstinence is great. Unless you're married. Then it's not. Okay? That's the design. So um, because of fornication, immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. And so, yes, there are urges and needs and, and sexual needs, and God designed us this way. This is how we're designed, and it's not a bad thing. And so he designed it and blessed it and designed marriage. One man, one woman, and here's the need. Here's the grace. Each one. <laughs> All right. You know, it doesn't say each man is to have his own harem. Uh, each man is to have his own wife. And each wife, each woman, is to have her own husband. And the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the duty to her husband. Because, see, you don't have authority over your bodies anymore. When you're married, you're one, the two become one flesh. The wife does not have authority over her body, and the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. You may say, hey, we're going to take this season as a, as a prayer focus or, or something of that nature. But that's an exception to the rule, not the normal for marriage. That you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. And here's where we start to get to where he communicates opinions and reflections and convictions. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. He was unmarried at, at this time. In fact, we never see mention of a wife uh, for the Apostle Paul other than the fact that he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. And what we know is, is prior to the Damascus Road experience, that you could not be a voting member without a wife. That you had to be over 30 years of age, you had to be married, otherwise you were not a voting member. As, uh, and when he says, I cast my vote against them, he could, Scripture betrays the reality that, that Saul of Tarsus was a voting member of the, of the Sanhedrin. So what happened to his wife? What happened to uh, the circumstance there after he comes back from Damascus having named the name of Christ? All right. Yet, throughout the rest of his ministry, he stays unmarried. And um, he says, I wish all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. So he says, you know, it'd be great if everybody was celibate, everybody was single. Then you've got this maximum time to, to travel and worship and serve and, and all this stuff. However... Each man has his own gift. And, and if you're not gifted for that, then uh, 
you're asking for trouble. If they don't uh, have self-control, let them marry. It is better to marry than to burn. If God hasn't gifted you with that calling, then you need uh, normal family life. All right. And then, uh, so that's verse 7. So he gives an opinion, he says, you know, but not everyone is designed like this. And that's fine, okay? Same thing when he gives his opinion in, uh, in verse 25. Concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord. Uh, earlier in the chapter, he was citing the Gospels, uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Jesus' teaching on divorce. And he's, he talks, says, talks about what the Lord commands, and then he talks about what, what he is uh, illustrating. But here he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. You can't turn to the Gospels and see Jesus' teaching about uh, withholding marriage from your virgin daughter. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And so he says right out here, he says, this is my opinion. This is my judgment. But it's as one that is trustworthy in the Word of God. Somebody that is being shaped by doctrine. As, but by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. It is good for a man to remain as he is. Okay? And so we, you know, we can talk about the first century circumstances in Corinth. We can talk about the 21st century circumstances in America. We can talk about missionary travels in other parts of the world. All right? And I can illustrate, I, 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 you know, I know a man that, that travels the world, does archaeology, you know who I'm talking about, Titus Kennedy, and the archaeology work. And we've talked about this. He, he has given it to the Lord, but he thinks his, his life is such, his calling is such, that he doesn't know how a, a wife would, could live like that. And, and with all the travel, with all the danger, with all the... the uh, you know, rather than sitting in one place and, and building a nest and raising kids in that, um, he, uh, of course, he's willing to obey God if God gives him a wife, but he's accepting the fact that, that he may have a, a life like the Apostle Paul and be unmarried all his days. Okay? And so that, uh, I, I understand that. Or missionary couples that choose not to have children because of the dangerous uh, realms of, of where they're going and what they're doing. And so I think as we're led by the Lord, we come to these convictions. So are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. If you marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And, uh, and there are distractions. If you're married, then you have legitimate concerns with how to please your spouse. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's biblical. All right. But I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they have none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess. In other words, we want to be very heavenly focused in all that we do. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. In any event, there's a whole lot of teaching on that, and uh, MP3s are sitting on the website if you want. Hours and hours uh, that goes into uh, 1 Corinthians 7. This is just a, kind of a 10-minute synopsis on, uh, on that. Um, but he explains his, his, uh, his thinking on this. 
Um, so if you want to keep your daughter under your roof and not uh, marry her off, that's, you're free to do that. That is, uh, that is your prerogative as her father. Um, the chapter even ends with this about opinion. In my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. They're talking about a, a widow that would be free to remarry. Uh, she's free to remarry. She's free to stay unmarried as she's led by the Lord. The Lord may give her a, a, another husband in a remarriage. That's marvelous. We've got circumstances like that here. Or uh, the Lord may keep you unmarried for the rest of your days. Okay, We've got circumstances like that here as well. And however the Lord wants to lead in that. Paul says, in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. All right, so all of this is to show that uh, it's fairly common for Paul's writings to share his attitudes, his mindset, his thinking, his applications, and then how, how he invites others to join him in those same opinions and those same uh, attitudes, and yet leaving it not, not on a cultish basis, not saying that you have to be me or you have to do what I do, but as he imitates Christ, he urges his, his people to imitate, become imitators of Paul right? And, uh, and if you have a different attitude, God will show that to you. God is marvelous at showing us where our attitudes are falling short, where our attitudes need adjustment, because uh, our Father is the ultimate in the <laughs> administration of the attitude adjustment, all right? And thank God for that. So, which gets us then to main point four, the beside the point points that Paul makes. There are, and I found five, and there may be more. If you find more, let me know. Pauline or Pauline contrasts of life and death. You know, and, and we put the chart up earlier. Zoe is not a, a word that, that the Apostle Paul uses a lot. Okay? John does in his gospel, in 1 John, in his epistle, in Revelation. Uh, Zoe is really a dominant theme for the Apostle John, far more than, than Paul. Um, and so he, he doesn't use a whole lot of it, but when he does, he tends to contrast it with Thanatos' death, and then when he contrasts it with Thanatos' death, he then usually speaks to a larger issue and uh, presents life and death as a contrast that's really beside the point. And so that's what I'm going to list for you here under point four, the Pauline or the Pauline contrast of life and death. They are useful in the beside-the-point points that they make, starting with what we've already seen in Galatians 2, our life is Christ, our life in Christ is Christ living in us. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Our life in Christ. Our life in Christ is Christ living in us. And we've already turned there, we've already looked at it, but we see that it's without Christ, it is when he says it is no longer I who live, we realize that the life apart from Christ is the life of I. <laughs> okay? It's the totally self-centered life of, of I. And it's reflective of Satan and his I and his five I wills and all about me and all about my exaltation. And you can go to a bookstore, there's aisles and shelves and shelves and shelves of, of uh, self-help and self-enrichment uh, and self-improvement and self everything, okay? I mean, that's, our culture is steeped in that. There's whole industries that are all dedicated to self, 
Okay? Men will be lovers of self. And if you want, people will even pay $120 for a, an hour, which is really a billable hour, more of 50 to 55 minutes. And they're pouring all that money into talking about self. And uh, because here's a guy that'll listen to me talk about me. And uh, in, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So the life without Christ is the life of I. The life with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And I think the only illustration I think that maybe that expands upon that a little bit is because in in modern times we've developed um, transplant procedures whereby you can become a donor, you can receive a donor, or somebody can live because a family member or somebody has donated a kidney or donated a heart or something of that nature. And um, the the sense of awareness that, you know, I'm living because somebody, you know, donated their heart and it's now inside of me. And, and, and I can't imagine, although I've heard stories, I've seen news interviews, but the, the, uh, the, the appreciation, the thanks, the, the, uh, the sense of, of wonder that that you would that you're still alive because somebody else is now inside of you, and and they've talked about that that you know I feel a connection with so and so and whatever okay, and and it's curious to me on how that works and what what all is involved in the physiology of it and the psychology of it and the spirituality of it, um, what all is involved when that happens if you have an organ inside of you that used to be in, inside of somebody else. And, and what are we doing with, with that? But, um, but, but so I've seen these interviews and I've heard people talk about how special that is, you know, because, you know, a part of them is still here. You know, they're dead, they're in heaven, but a part of them is still here because I have their kidney or I have their, their lung or I have their heart. I don't know what else gets transplanted. But, um, so have you seen the same, the same interviews? And I'm thinking, what a metaphor or what an illustration for Galatians 2.20. Because the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me that I might live. And, and, and it's Him living in me. That's a reality. Jesus Christ lives in me and He lives in you, lives in each one of us. And so this is, this is why uh, the, the, the church age is greater than the incarnation. Jesus told His disciples, greater works than, this, than these will you be doing. In the, in the incarnation, for three and a half years, Jesus was monopresent. Now Jesus is in me, He's in you, He's in all of us, the body of Christ around the world, ministering, revealing the Father. It's a glorious thing. So this is the beside the point point that He makes here in uh, Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Uh, how about First um, Thessalonians 5.10? Physical death is not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. Physical death is not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.10. And um, I like First and Second Thessalonians. I like uh, the rapture doctrine that's there. I like the second advent doctrine that's there. To me, it's always useful to remind ourselves of our eschatology so that we never lose uh, track of that. But it's a life or death passage centering on Christ. First Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our destiny. We were predestined for this. We were elect for this. We were called for this. We were saved for this. Not for wrath. Who di- uh, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep... See, now there are some, clearly 20 centuries of Christianity is already dead. 20 centuries of, of, of the bride is already in heaven with the Lord. There's only us, the living generation, the moment the trumpet sounds. that we'll be alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. That's the rapture doctrine from chapter 4. So whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. And, and this, is, this, is, this is sweet. I love this. You know, we're, we're a picture of Christ in the church. Uh, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And yet every time I preach a wedding, what are, the, what are those vows? Till death us do part. We're only bound so long as our spouse is living. When our spouse departs, then the marriage union is, is, is dissolved. The widow is free to remain single or remarry and as the Lord leads. All right? Marriage is for life. So it ends with death. Not so for the bride of Christ. It does not end with death. Christ died, we die. Okay, but we never die with our eternal life in Christ. So it's a, it's a fun thing. Physical death is not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. And we, uh, I'm going to start doing more bride studies where we emphasize the bride in totality, the bride that, that has to be the post-rapture bride because the bride has never been in totality uh, at one point at one time and can't be until the bride is finished. There are still people that aren't yet saved. They're not yet part of the bride. And so it requires the rapture of the church then for the bride in totality to be brought together with Christ. Then with the head and the body together, then we start to see what the fullness is all about. That he is the one, Jesus is the one who fills the fullness and how do we operate in the fullness. Can't do that until the rapture. So stay tuned because I think Ephesians addresses an awful lot of that. That's looking forward to the millennium and it's looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. That's what we're uh, supposed to be looking to. Living and dying is a win-win in Christ. Living and dying is a win-win in Christ. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we like to use that idiom, right? Win-win. It's a win-win for both parties in, uh, you know, some kind of a, a business arrangement or some kind of a deal. Uh, something happens, an event takes place, two people experience the event and they both benefit from it. Well, then that's a win-win, Right? It's not a it's not a zero sum game. It's not a uh, somebody else doesn't have to lose so that you can win. We're not. It's not about tearing somebody down so you can build yourself up. Uh, the New Testament would never have us do that. But uh, issues of living and dying, as we see here in Philippians one twenty, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And uh, Paul says, if I go on living, it's for your sake. There is fruitful ministry that will that will happen. There is, a, there is a lot of edification that's going to happen, more Bible teaching to happen, and, uh, and it's all grace. So that's a win. But then dying and being face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and, and uh, that's a win, I tell you. I, I can't wait to dump this sinning body. <laughs> I think we all have the same, who will set us free from this body of death? I, you know, if that was today, that's, that's great. No more sinning. How about that? And so it is a win-win in Christ. And it, I think it shapes 
the funerals we preach. I think it shapes the widows we encourage. I think it shapes uh, our whole outlook to everything that we do. Being uh, uh, already now laying hold of that eternal life. Okay? And you only get that through this kind of teaching. You only get that through this eternal perspective. Far too many Christians, they've adopted eternal life as a, as a fire insurance policy. Right? They're glad they have it, but they never want to use it. I mean, seriously, when do you want to use your fire insurance policy? Well, you can't use it until your house burns down, right? And so you, you have it, but you don't ever want to use it. And, and you get these, these uh, professing Christians and, and, or non-disciple Christians that they, they, they get saved, they never really grow much, and then they don't really think much about God. It's just kind of a, a check mark in their box. They're, they're done. And, and they don't want to go to hell, hell when they die, clearly. They want to go to heaven when they die. But in the meantime, just kind of leave them alone. All right? They're living in the world. They're being conformed to this world, as Romans 12 says is going to happen. In any event. And you start to wonder, well, really? Were you saved at all? <laughs> don't you love the, the, the God that saved you? In, uh, in that regard. But that's a whole other topic. So, uh, but living is Christ, and it's not just uh, it's not just uh, uh, it, it should be a daily focus on our eternal life. It says laying, taking hold of that eternal life to which you were called. Are you holding it? Are you holding it? Think about how active it is if you're holding it. It's not just something you have in a pocket that you forgot about, or it's in a drawer somewhere. It's in a it's in a drawer in a closet in a bathroom in an upstairs room. I mean, it is, I mean, you still have it, technically. You have it because you know where it is and you vaguely remember the last time you've seen it. So you can say you have it, <laughs> but do you really, are you laying hold of it? Do you actively have it? And, and we should actively be laying hold of our eternal life because we live it now. Living and dying, living in Christ means we're no longer living in the world and it's elementary things. And uh, I want to I spend some time on this. Wednesday night we'll come back, Lord willing, rapture pending. I want to spend some time on Colossians. Because what does it mean? We're still physical humans alive on planet Earth. But we no longer reside in the cosmos. We are in the world but not of the world. And so while our physical body is still earthbound, we're terrestrial. <laughs> we're not going to become Martians or anything. We're not going to live on another planet. But we no longer live in this world. We're heavenly citizens. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so we're here as aliens and strangers. We're here as fish out of water. Okay? We don't fit. We're a little bit different. We're a lot different than this fallen world. So we'll talk about that. And then the fifth passage is a whole string of things in Romans. So that'll take some time too. But living in Christ means we're no longer living in the world and it's elementary things. Colossians 2 has a life and death contrast. Colossians 3 has a life and death contrast. But those life and death issues are really beside the point. The real point is, is we're a new creation in Christ. We are a heavenly people. And uh, we are the creation that's waiting for the new heavens and new earth we already have that new creation ourselves. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. 
We uh, pray, Father, that you'll take hold of this information and that we would first of all understand it and then have a, an, a, an academic understanding of what we're studying. But then, Father, that we would fully uh, have the full knowledge by faith to, uh, to, to absorb it, Father, to see its impact, to live it out, to uh, communicate it in, in, as it shapes our thinking. So, Father, uh, make this, uh, these passages very real to each one of us, Father. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.